0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. Block Talk Radio. host also a radio
1: show host, a real radio show host, Dave gary host of Who's the Bad Guy. How's it going Dave?
0: Not not good because this um this device here to lower the music, and it's always been problematic, but you know, I started lowering it at that point where you wanted me to lower it at, you know, and uh, it did nothing. <laughs> and then I I lowered I kept lowering it by notch and notch and notch and nothing and Finally, I just had to turn it off. I mean, Lord, well, listen, yeah. listen, we'll just do it like this.
1: Welcome aboard to this edition of History Day, in case you missed it. This is Paul Angel and your ho- and your co-host, Dave Kahari, coming to you live from Virginia and Florida. So, Dave, lots of stuff still happening in the news. Lots of stuff going on with this Confederate stuff. I keep talking about it because it just galls me. But... Uh, well, i talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess people are interested in this subject because we do get emails, we do get comments. There's a lot of people who are pretty upset about this. As I mentioned in my last show, there's people marching out here and displaying the flag, and people are coming up with the rainbow flag and the, uh, the, the, the La Raza flag. And I say, hey, fantastic! As long as you can have an open dialogue about the thing not have it devolved into a shouting match and violence with so far.
0: Well, well, seems, wait a second. Wait a second, Paul. Well, I want to, to say to, you, so you so were going to what? You were going to say so far seems what? So far seems encouraging that we are having people out here standing up for their heritage. Well, did you hear about those folks that got a gun pulled on them? Oh, no,
1: I did not hear about that. I've heard a lot of other stuff going on behind the scenes here, uh, going on the property, pulling down private flags. Tell me about this other
0: incident, Dave. Yeah, these folks in your state, Virginia, in Chesterfield County. I don't know if you know where that is. That's out there, I think. Virginia's huge. But anyway, in Chesterfield County, Virginia, an Amelia man, I don't know where that is, but uh, was charged with brandishing a firearm after he pointed a gun at a Chesterfield family who was waving Confederate flags on Hull Street Road outside of their Mosley home police said so this fellow james baker i don't think any relation to the infamous james a baker the third james baker 46 was released following his arrest on the class one misdemeanor that's pretty interesting when you brandish a firearm and not only that i watched the video of, of this poor family um where they said he slammed on the brakes and And when he got right beside me, he pulled out a gun, chambered around, and told me my cause wasn't worth anything now. He got out of the car and took three steps towards me, and the gun was maybe six inches off my head. And this was in front of his children. So you got to wonder about the race of this person who did this, because it's very clear, the authorities across this once great nation treat the races differently when it comes to charges, criminal charges. Now here's a guy who pulled out a gun, chambered around, put it six inches from the guy's head, threatened him and he got a class one misdemeanor. Well, maybe I'm wrong.
1: I think it's good that people are out there and they, they need not to be intimidated, but that's a scary situation right there. I mean, pulling a gun right there on your family, I imagine uh that it would be one of these uh, thuggish types, uh, hard to believe it would be a business suit, black guy who would come out there and not understand a little bit more about it. But listen, man, standing up yourself is a dangerous job, and standing up for the truth is a dangerous job. And so people have to feel comfortable with what they're doing. Uh, I think that this is all the more reason why groups like the Foundation and the First Amendment need to support these private groups that raise their flag up <clears throat> this isn't just a stroll in the park here this is an important time in our history and we either try to uh, get the truth out about this and make a little bit of a standard we roll over like every white politician practically I won't say all uh, have rolled over in the south to make sure that they're on the right side of political correctness but, you know, man, <laughs> it, it just goes to show you that these uh, these symbols are important to people. They're, they're powerful things. And, you know, and I, I just keep thinking to myself, what's next? What's next? I mean, look at another.
0: Well, before that. you go into that, Paul, remember yes. this. That's because don't forget what you were going to say. All right. you. you. You want to give me the topic so we can go back to it? Or? Well, it, it really doesn't matter because
1: if I forget what I was going to say, I'm sure I'll have something else. I no, said. it does
0: matter because <laughs> I hate doing that. But it, it, I, uh, It's okay. We were going to talk about I'm just going to segue into another news item. Okay, well, well, remember that news item. What's it yeah. about anyway? Of the church shootings. Okay, yes. yes. Uh, now, you're originally from Maryland, right? That's correct. Okay, you were talking about gutless politicians, right? Absolutely. Okay, so did you know now that in – July of 2015, and I think we could say July of 2015, because if we just say 2015, it doesn't mean much considering how fast things are happening, and the news is just every day there's something new. I mean, they're going to ban pretty soon, you know, people holding their hands to their hearts uh, because uh, it represents a racist uh, ideology. But here, you're, well, you're from Maryland, born and bred, I guess, and I guess the governor of maryland this guy martin o'malley uh he was at a um some kind of an event
1: ex-governor he's running for president now.
0: ex-governor right uh, some kind of event on saturday just, uh, two days ago and uh, discussing police violence against blacks and there were liberal demonstrators there It was a net net roots nation conference a gathering of liberal activists And of course, it's just not blacks, it's these white liberal fools. They were there also. So they're shouting Black Lives Matter, and O'Malley responded, Black Lives Matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Well, guess what, Paul? The demonstrators who were mostly black responded by booing him and shouting him down, and guess what he did later that day? He
1: apologized.
0: That's correct. Good for him. Now he has a chance in politics. <laughs> so, so, so we can really say now that only black lives matter to these white politicians. Oh, now he's white, right? <laughs> well, listen, I've got
1: well, dean, I think, in some school or a, a, a history teacher with lots of uh, tenure had said the same silly thing, the idea that everybody's lives matter. Uh, but it's just not part of It's not part of the narrative, as we say. It's not part of the, uh, the accepted rhetoric right now. Uh, you know, when will white lives matter? I guess when we're the the, the the vast minority. I'll come back to the church shooting. I won't forget, but there was something here Good. that John Tiffany over at the Barnes & C. sent me, and it was, I think, a statement somebody had made. Well, just an average citizen. You know, Slavery today, he, he called it. Some 160 years ago, the white people sat in the porch, drank mint juleps, and watched the black people do the work that needed to be done so the whites could live the life they wanted. The blacks didn't produce enough to keep the whites happy. They complained about it, maybe got a little stern and physical. In those days, it was called slavery. But time passes, and today, many black people are sitting on their butts, drinking Thunderbird, and watch the white people work to pay the taxes that are necessary for the black people to live the life they want. Their welfare check is not enough to keep them happy, and they complain about it. Maybe even loot and burn. What is it called today? Freedom would appear to me. He says the only thing that really has changed in the last 160 years has been the color of the slaves. Well, that's a a bit overstated, but I think it makes the point that at what point in time? Uh, I mean, do do we do we and can we say enough is enough here? Uh, white lives do matter, black lives matter, but if black lives really matter, I think that black leaders would get inside these communities and be honest with themselves and honest to get on the media, if the media wouldn't censor their comments, to point out that the worst enemy of any young black man is probably the young black man down the street who might be on the wrong side of the, of the criminal fence. And that so many hundreds of thousands, what do we say, three or four hundred thousands, Right. Blacks have killed each other in this country in the past, say, 30 years. We think the number might be higher because there's a lot of unsolved ones and homicides, et cetera. But this is a genocide of immense proportion in which we're looking at this, honestly. The United Nations would probably be in this country, in some of the inner cities, uh, occupying these poverty-stricken areas to prevent the carnage. I, I don't know how many Tutsis and Hutus killed each other in Central Africa, made it in the millions. But you're talking over 30 years, half of this, you know. And, of course, it may not have been quite as brutal, I understand, in Africa. They hack your limbs off and torture you and all this other stuff. But, I mean, as we've seen here, we've had white people tortured. I'm sure we've had blacks tortured by their fellow blacks. We've had shootings, trips to the hospital, threats, intimidation. It's It's something that I think is a much worse problem for the black community to overcome than the few and far between white racist cops that exist. Uh, Not to say that cops haven't gone uh, in a particular direction over the past 25 years, we'll say, towards being militarized, but that's all part of the program. I can't blame them for going to classes. I can't blame them for buying into the whole thing that the average citizen now is the enemy. And uh, they are an occupying force as well. But anyway, and that brings us to the news media. Why doesn't the news media talk about this? Well, now we've had this huge run of publicity. I think it's died down recently. And by the way, I, I know you don't watch TV, but this is one of the reasons you kind of got to watch it, just to see what they're not saying and what they are saying. And to reconvince yourself, if you ever had any doubt, or an average person to, that has any doubt, that what you're getting on the mainstream newspapers and mainstream newscasts on television And even on the radio, it's just pure censored propaganda. And go ahead and look at what they're saying about these black church burnings. Um, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but Dave, if you can pull up the last issue of American Free Press, how
0: long will that take Mm you? Uh, It will take me, let's see, five, four, three, two, one. Okay. The story's on page...
1: Well, uh, four, I believe, or is it
0: six? So, uh, six. I will tell you in a
1: sec. page and, six and read that for us. It's only
0: 500 words. You have a beautiful voice. Read that oh. story. Oh, God, that's what I want to do is read this story. Which, I, which You know what? I have to read this story. Well, we can, you, can, you can read, read a paragraph. Ready? If there's anything you want to comment on, stop there or I'll stop All right. you. All right, you just stop me. Okay. Black church burning hysteria. That's right. It's on page eight. Yellow journalists are crying racism, but, they, but are they really just crying wolf by John Tiffany? The mainstream media is on a roll, reporting that in the aftermath of the Charleston church shooting. I guess we have to say alleged Charleston church shooting because we weren't there. I wasn't there. Were you there, Paul?
1: Uh, no.
0: No. Okay. So we really don't know what happened. There's been a rash of church arson, arsons in black churches in the South, and the racists are behind it. Writers on the Internet have fueled the fire, calling attention to six incidents at predominantly black churches in the South recently. Many criticized what they claimed was the lack of media coverage to the so-called story. But what is the truth about these, and is someone really committing arson? The short answer is no. Take the fire at Mount Zion African Methodist Church in Greeleyville, South Carolina. The building burned to the ground, but it turned out to be caused by lightning, not arson. Church fires are surprisingly common, regardless whether black, white, or mixed, and in most cases, it is not arson. In fact, nationwide, there are an average of 34 church fires per week. This writer's own church had a bad fire a couple of years ago and nearly was totaled. The church was mostly white, but a Hispanic congregation that also used the building had neglected to put out all the candles causing the blaze. There has, in fact, been considerable media hoopla about the notion that racists are burning black churches. There are some 890 stories on the Greeleyville fire alone. Too much media coverage, really, on a fire caused by lightning. Reuters relayed the news that a fire inside a mostly black church in Macon, Georgia, has been ruled as arson by fire officials. Local newspaper, The Telegraph reported The arson ruling came a day after North Carolina authorities said a predominantly black church in Charlotte was purposely burned. And roughly a week after a white government opened fire, allegedly, in an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, killing nine people. The shooting came amid months of intense debate over U.S. racial relations and a renewed civil rights movement after unarmed black men were killed by police officers in Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, and elsewhere. The truth is, however, Macon Bibb County Fire Sergeant Ben Gleaton said the investigation is still continuing and there is nothing yet to indicate the fire at the Macon Church was a hate crime. Editorialized The Washington Post, it is not wrong to worry that the recent fires are the latest in a long line of hate. If Dylan Roof's solo crusade in the name of white supremacy did not start the race war he yearned for, The subsequent backlash against the Confederate battle flag does seem to have invigorated racist groups. It's hard to watch hatred surge and churches burn in so short a span of time and not wonder if the two are related. Investigators should deliver answers as quickly as they can. A Baltimore Sun editorial expressed concern about a mysterious series of fires at African-American churches across the South. In the wake of the Charleston shootings, as if it were a case of history repeating itself, the Sun cited an uptick in attacks on 37 black churches in the South in the 1990s that prompted President Bill Clinton to set up a church arson investigative task force. The newspaper failed to mention that Clinton had falsely claimed at the time that he had, quote, vivid and painful memories of black churches being burned in my own state when I was a child, an assertion promptly debunked by the Arkansas Democrat citizen. The yellow press coverage that launched the 1990s media stereo sparked by fear Gary Fields, who scribbled 61 Stampede the Lemmings stories in USA Today on supposed black church arson. Now, history is repeating in the current juggernaut of white supremacist arson tales, but it's a history of establishment media lying, not of churches burning. The field's fabrication fell apart under serious scrutiny, and USA Today had to admit, quote, analysis of the 64 fires since 1995 shows only four can be conclusively shown to be racially motivated," <clears throat> Says conservative writer Michelle Malkin, several of the hyped hate crimes against black churches have been committed by black suspects. A significant number of the black churches are in fact white churches. And the complex motives include Included mental illness, vandalism, and concealment of theft, added Malkin. The last thing the community in our country need are hysterical journalists compounding the pain with inflammatory reporting on an unsubstantiated epidemic of black church arsons. Confirmation bias is a psychological phenomenon whereby people seek out information that seems to confirm their existing opinions and Ignore information that goes against their prejudices, to be charitable rather than say the media are outright lying. We could say these, quote, prostitutes are victims of confirmation bias. Their minds are already made up, so do not confuse them with the facts. A black church burns in the South, and without evidence, the mind of a northern liberal immediately turns to racial hatred as the likely cause And the liberal media has brainwashed the average American to the point that every shooting or bombing conjures up the idea of a terrorist act. Last paragraph. In truth, church fires have been on the decline for several decades, according to the National Fire Protection Association, I guess they would know. Only about one in six fires at black churches is intentional, and only a fraction of those are racially motivated. Half of those arrested for such arsons are younger than 18 suggesting that stupidity and youthful indiscretion are a major cause. Also, since churches are a symbol of authority, attacking them might be a way for thrill-seeking young teens to rebel against society. And before you comment on this, Paul, I just want to say, this is why American Free Press is so important. I'm done.
1: My point, exactly, pretty much, Uh, what's the truth? Why are they focusing on this, uh, this particular story? Why are they weaving fictional stories about it before they have all the facts in? Uh, we talk about this all the time, but the mainstream media seems to be greater and bigger and more powerful than ever as far as uh, molding people's minds. Here's one and the coverage of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Freddie Gray and all these other, all this other Stories have been spun one way or another into an anti-white narrative that the cops have to be white. Of course, after we found out in Baltimore that I think half of, more than half of the cops involved, and that uh, uh, guy who was arrested there for well, I don't know what he was particularly arrested for. At that time, I think he had an illegal weapon, but he they knew who he was and what he been doing. He's been doing it they've been arrested 24 times. He's been a plague on that society, uh, in that inner city. Uh, they had never uh, as far as I know on the mainstream media, a lot of people know the truth about his arrest record, but I still don't really. I've never seen anything about it. But of course that all died down once after the cops were black. And so that makes a point about police brutality. but it, it, they never really corrected the record on that being a, a white crime, a, a totally white crime against a uh, young black man. At any rate, so what's their agenda is the question. And uh, the agenda evidently seems to be to stir up troubles for, between the races with the, I mean, let's be honest, Dave, with the ultimate purpose of, of controlling or brainwashing or splitting the white population. This Confederate flag issue is interesting because, as we pointed out, think Chris Pepper pointed out, the editor of AFP on the last show, that uh, a lot of Northerners don't seem to care about this particular issue. They're not wedded to the uh, Southern flag, any of the different ones that are flying, and they don't particularly have the pride in that flag that they did. And the Northerners see the Civil War as a different thing anyway. They just see it as uh, bringing a bunch of rebellious people in, uh, to heal and keeping the United States together, as opposed to Southerners who see it as a real uh, stand against federal tyranny. And so you know, uh, Northerners need to, as we said, last program with many to watch out what they uh, what's coming next and we mentioned that that statue the says with uh, a priest black robe is being removed. okay. This is an assault against white Christian culture, and there's no a larger density, I suppose, of white Christians than there is in the South, especially ones that can be so easily smeared and pigeonholed as racists and and throwbacks to an era when there was slavery so this church burning thing seems to me just part of a pattern of of inflaming people against one another for whatever purpose it is because i always i always want to know who thrives on mayhem the best and what good does it really do even those we normally point a finger at to have rioting and and businesses burning and smoke coming up from cities except fear you know it, it it, it, it's got a lot of white people afraid uh, that things like this are going to come to their neighborhood. And of course, then on the heels of the news that uh, Mr. Obama has uh, still pursuing, although Congress is resisting, this high density uh, minority housing in the midst of, well, generally speaking, either high class or middle class black or white neighborhoods, you know, it's got them. Concerned that we are in the midst of fighting Civil War three. Now I know you're going out to go do this League of the South rally pretty soon here. But I saw League of the South. If you're up
0: on this, just had another one, didn't they? Didn't they have some type of rally? Yeah, no, it's not a rally. It's their annual convention. Okay. Okay. Although there That's will true. be there will be a um, a demonstration, right, in uh, the streets.
1: Well, uh, you went. To, you're going to that one, but didn't they just have some other event, or perhaps they always have events in which. Uh, I saw the uh, that there was a clash between black and white, we'll call them protesters, uh, somewhere, legally. yes, and that, and that it was it was billed as a KKK rally. Do you know anything about this this the South um, event?
0: Well, there was a KKK event this weekend, this past weekend. Okay. And that was in South Carolina. Okay. But as far as the League of the South, yeah, they, there, are, there are chapters in, I think, uh, well, how many southern states are there uh, during the Civil War? I think there were, what, uh, 13? Okay, 13, 13. Okay, 13. 13 seceded, I believe, and there may have been some border ones that didn't get a chance to do. Maryland is one. Oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you, I, I had ordered that book after you mentioned it a couple weeks ago, Starving the South, and I got it, and I'm reading it right now. Interesting stuff there. That, of course, that was I mean. a good one.
1: Yeah, it was also War Crimes Against Southern Civilians, which was a,
0: an absolutely horrific
1: book, uh, to, to learn the truth of what, besides Americans shooting one another in military uniforms, but to see what, what U.S. troops will do to civilians. And this is, you know, it, this whole assault against the South, it's just, is it all coincidental that it's all happened so recently that we're now having these jade helm exercises almost exclusively, I think, in southern and southwestern states? And, um, you know, that's why these people are answering down there. And I know that Michael Hill over at the League of the South had written a nice uh, editorial about uh, why people need to watch out what they get provoked into now, because all they're looking for is another incident to. To vilify uh, any other section of white society that they haven't figured out how to vilify. Maybe it's white northerners who are now looked upon a lot differently than white southerners. Of course, uh, slavery was still legal in the northern states, and uh, there were still slaveholders during the uh, Civil War there. And so, and we also know that a lot of the people in the far north are as racist as anybody could possibly find anywhere in the South.
0: That's right. In New Jersey, there's a big contingent of KKK uh, people. So. Yeah, I, I don't
1: even know what the KKK is
0: doing anymore. I, I
1: read one time that uh, recently an uh, FBI, I think it was, said that there were 32 chapters left that they had diminished. So I wonder if all part of this is to reinvigorate that. We know that this is a great uh, vehicle for the FBI to infiltrate through uh, chapters like this I, I, I remember the shocking story that i think it was from assad or apac or all these lobbies working together with intelligence had funded one of the largest kkk chapters in america for many years because they and they got the most virulent types of, of people out there uh, the ones who would scream the worst defamations they could against blacks and to make them look as horrible as possible. And other KKK chapters were like, "Who the heck are these guys? They're 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 hardcore." Well, it turns out they're being funded by by or maybe with was the SPLC. Who knows? They work hand in glove. Yeah, that,
0: that and, that's a love group in uh, Alabama. Okay, so and, yeah, and, the SPLC. Right. So here's the you know if
1: you if you have whites feeling threatened and they feel like they want to do something, but they don't want to know what to do by themselves. They figure maybe uh, peaceful rallies or uh, displays of symbols of southern culture might be a positive way to do this, and all of a sudden uh, there's an uh, there's an increase in the number of whites who join these groups. Well then, bigger and, and more vocal KKK chapters is only going to mean bigger and more vocal newspaper stories on how horrible they are, and again, yeah, it's just a it just seems like everything's being used to rile everybody up to the point where we're at, where we're at each other's throats. So it also guess,
0: might be sorry. It also might be no, the, the the last dying gasps of the elite media, the mainstream media, because it's clear that television viewership is way down for these news uh, quote unquote news outlets, and they might be just desperate for viewers and going the way of the what what are those uh, those magazines and the uh, supermarkets the national inquirer, yeah, right? Right, right yeah right. <clears throat> the globe I think. yeah right they, they might be going the way of of those uh, papers because they're losing an audience and if they can if they can stretch the truth really far obviously after reading that article That we just did they can stretch the truth and you know people want to believe in this crap you know they want to believe that there's you know people in white hoods you know in your own neighborhood waiting to lynch the you know the innocent black guy who has done nothing when the fact of the matter is and they don't talk about this that there's blacks open opening fire right in broad daylight on cops in Missouri now so Uh, They don't want to talk about that or they don't want to talk about what we've mentioned before about the guy pulling the gun on these people. All they were doing was waving the Confederate flag on the side of the road. So maybe it is not so much that they have an agenda, but their agenda is to get an audience.
1: Yeah, I haven't taken a look recently at their ratings to see. I'm interested to see the demographics of people watching the news. Has there been an uptick? In black viewership, because of um, the coverage of black issues, which has been increased. And if so, would there be more uh, marketing dedicated towards the black audience? You know, black black Americans do spend money, and they're an extremely important part of the uh, economy as far as that goes. Uh, and I remember seeing that, uh, you know. I, Google and everybody else will say, and advertisers are doing a very good job these days, figuring out what exactly you're going to um, buy. It was a a scary thing. I I had dinner with a friend of mine this weekend, and we met out, and the reason that spurred this program, we haven't gotten there yet, but it was a a restaurant off John S. Mosby Highway in, I think it was Loudoun, and we were talking about him getting onto Google, and he likes Tesla cars and Tesla products. Well, he's been stationed overseas, but he happened to have made uh, on his Google calendar uh, notations that he would be in the United States for the 30 days of July. And here, <laughs> and they know where he was staying And so he gets an alert that Tesla car company was having a big symposium or something in Cumberland, Maryland, okay, we'll say. And it's like, it, that's almost scary. Google knows where you're going to be, what you're looking for, and and what's on your calendar. Only because you let them know. Yeah, well that's right. I, I don't I don't use Google Calendar. I I would love to have a Facebook page, but I really don't want to have that Facebook thing going on and having pictures of me. I guess I could have pictures of me running around historical sites or whatever. But anyway, while we're having dinner on a unrelated subject, but uh, on that or to Google. related to our subject today, he says, What's up with John S. Mosby Iowa? And I said, You don't know about John S. Mosby, the Grey Ghost. Back when we were kids, Dave, Disney had lots of programs, history programs, which just seemed to be completely gone now. I mean, we used to watch Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, The Grey Ghost, which was the show a show about a Confederate raider, okay, a, a cavalryman, on mainstream TV. I am absolutely sure that the old gray ghost wouldn't have a shot of being on any television Mm -hmm. program. Now, maybe it's on some, uh, excuse me, maybe on some old uh, throwback television program. Guaranteed, it'll be off of it soon. But the guy's name, let's see, what was his name? Yeah, it was on for, well, it was only on for one year maybe it wasn't that popular but it was the 1957 and 1958 I'm like where have those historical programs gone where have those sweet family-oriented programs gone they are they are gone they are just vanished I don't know if they made made us not want them anymore if you know what I mean by that meaning uh, they just didn't market them anymore there wasn't money in them or if there's just something something else going on there but but that was one of the programs. And so who is John S. Mosby? Well, John S. Mosby was a Confederate cavalry raider at first and later on, I think he rose to the ranks to become a colonel. He started off as a private and uh, he operated here in Virginia and bedeviled the Union Army for uh, at least four or five years. I guess it was across five April, so April from the Civil War's four years, 1861, to 1865. But at any rate, and and how he got his nickname, the Great Ghost, of course, is he could appear uh, out of nowhere and then disappear just as quickly, back in the mist or the of uh, the or the fog or the rain or the forest and just disappear. People here in this section of Virginia still call it Moses Confederacy. Once he would uh, and his troops would escape to this area, any number of Southerners would give them. Uh, shelter, food, whatever else. At any rate, um, the Barnes Review, a few years back, published most of these memoirs. You know, guys from that era, and and, and particularly Southerners, I think, were extremely well-educated in the vein of of, of Thomas Jefferson, perhaps not to that level, because Jefferson could speak French and Greek and Latin and English and was a, any number of the types of scientists and geologists and or, uh, archaeologists, you know. But these guys were smart, and when they wrote, they made references to all kinds of classical uh, motifs, et cetera, et cetera. So just reading this book it brought to, to light, brought to, to focus how intelligent people were in the United States at the time, but also just... This particular guy was extremely intelligent and and also a military tactician. Now, he and uh, three of the great raiders of the Civil War on the Confederate side were Mosby, John Hunt Morgan, and Jeff Stewart. I'm trying to think who the other one was. It may not be Jeff Stewart, but he was another cavalry And they practically, uh, he was famous. He was Lee, the uh, eyes of Lee's army. But these guys rewrote warfare as we see it today as, as from a guerrilla standpoint, hit and run raids, uh, uh, hitting supply lines. And so uh, they they are still being studied, their tactics. And I don't know if they're going to be able to kill that but uh, in West Point, but their the tactics of these guys and Mosby are still being studied today uh, by our soldiers. So what they had to offer to the historical record is important. Whether or not they're going to be... Uh, Next time I go to that restaurant, if it's going to be the Maya Angelou Parkway, I'm not sure. But for now, people in this state are extremely proud of the accomplishments of Mosby, his as, as as legacy of, of uh, standing, of courage, standing up to the police state, standing up to Lakers police state, standing up to federal tyranny, protecting the people in the area and just a, a, a lost chivalry in warfare that it certainly doesn't exist today. You killed a man close up back in those days. I guess sharpshooters did. And you might fire each other a few bullets, but a lot of this stuff was hand to hand. And if you captured men, he didn't torture them. Generally speaking, he didn't assassinate them. There were real rules to war that that are, are broken all the time now on, on both sides. And um, ISIS, I think a different set of rules, we'll say, and uh, uh, then, then Westerners have. But even the Western way of fighting now is uh, kind of a sporadic way not a focused way. I might think that these smart bombs can, can uh, kill it's just exactly who you want to kill. Well, we kill women and children all the time, you know. And we kill women and children for many years. This was just a taboo thing on the Confederate side, anyway, during the Civil War. But uh, certainly not on the Union side, as you're going to find out. <coughs> Excuse me. It's uh, starving the South and war crimes against Southern civilians. But Let me read from the introduction to this book, and then I am going to read a few things, uh, if we have enough time, about what Mosby had to say uh, about uh, Uh, General Robert E. Lee and General Grant, uh, because these guys also at the very end of the war, most of the generals and politicians knew that to move forward as a nation we were going to have to go through a severe and abrupt uh, healing process, and that the longer we we drew out the hatreds that had been generated amongst some of the Civil War, the the longer it was going to take to heal, and the more fractured this nation was going to remain. At any rate, here comes the forward to tracking the Grey Ghost of Colonel John S. Mosby from the book The Memoirs of Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Uh, interrupt me at any time if you want to make a comment, Dave. Okay. The heroic John Singleton Mosby eluded the efforts of Union troops to capture him throughout the war against the South, earning him the nickname of the Grey Ghost. Special counter-partisan units were organized to squash him One such force faced off against Mosby in West Virginia. The guerrillas defeated the unit and captured its leader. At the end of the war, Mosby was one of the few Confederate leaders who never surrendered, although he was ordered to do so. He remains an inspiration to all patriotic young men and his tactics are studied even today. The Grey Ghost was a guerrilla fighter for the South and was so successful in his endeavors that if he were to be captured, he and any of his Rangers were to be hanged on the spot. This reflected the fear the feds had of Mosby. He was so victorious that he tied up thousands of Federals throughout northern Virginia in their terror that the U.S. president might be in jeopardy. A true hero, Mosby was greatly respected among other Confederates. With all of his exposure to danger during his many daring raids, he was never caught. However, General Robert E. Lee, who was a close friend, observed that Mosby's only fault was that he was always getting wounded. Wounded six times during the war. Mosby was born in 1833 in Powhatan County, Virginia, and died at age 82, May 30, 1916, on Memorial Day. I'm going to skip a little bit uh, ahead where we talk about his childhood and we're going to go to the Moore war, uh, war period. <clears throat> Mosby's mentor was General Jeb Stewart, uh, for whom he did some scouting work early on in the war. Stewart recognized Mosby's talent and gave him orders to form Company A, 43rd Battalion of the Virginia Cavalry, better known as Mosby's Rangers. The initial troop consisted of nine men, Slater to 400 Rangers. He preferred young men between 17 to 20 years of age, for they were so willing to obey, as well as being a little naive to the dangers they were about to face. Now, as an aside, they're also in a lot better shape. You start wearing out about <laughs> yeah. 20, 28 war, though, when you're running, running around, staying up 24 hours and getting shot. It's not that. Anyway, he saw the advantage of having partisan rangers, not regulars. This approach would entitled his men to the spoils of war, maybe he had accumulated enough to buy farms at the end of the war. And their youth never hindered their effectiveness. This reflected the leadership of Mosby. Mosby's practice was to keep the rangers in the dark about his plans until the last minute. His choice of weapons was Colt 44, preferring a handgun over a rifle or saber. Each ranger was to have at least two handguns, but many carried as many as four, five, or six revolvers. Often, when leading a charge, Mosby would use a horn, the horn kind of horn they use in the fox hunt out here in Virginia country. His guerrilla warfare was mainly in Virginia's Loudoun and Fauquier counties, from Aldi to the Shenandoah Valley, an area of many fox hunts today. Route 50 runs up the middle of his territory, with the terrain and many buildings, saying that Mosby viewed as he was driving the Union forces towards oblivion. In nearly all of his engagements, he was greatly outnumbered. The Mosby campaign lasted 28 months, but in that time he drove those Yankees mad. He would attack without warning and as quickly disappear. This enraged the North. His reputation grew. There was one close encounter when he faked his death by sparing his blood from a wound he was effective in this for the Union forces left him for dead. After his recovery, he suddenly appeared on the battlefield. And once again, the Federals had to admit that he truly was the gray ghost. Uh, an event did happen to him when he was a young man, which forever changed his life. Uh, he was a small man, about five foot six, five foot seven, about 125, 135 pounds. So he's a little guy. But so because of his size, this forward says, he was subject when young being bullied. This came to a head while a student at Virginia University. The campus bully, named George Turpin was angered at fellow student Mosby when some youth musicians played for Mosby's party instead of Turpin's. By the way, this, the legend of this goes back. Some people say it was a, a woman that had been um, um, insulted. But anyway, as was his modus operandi, Turpin would verbally threaten beat one up at the next encounter. In one case, he would kill the fellow student. Mosby, not one to back down, replied to this threat, accepting the beating that would follow. this time, he packed an old box pistol for the confrontation. And when Turpin rushed him, Mosby shot him in the neck. which reflected his sense of justice, as even the judge later acknowledged. Turpin recovered, but Mosby served nine months in jail and was fined $500. However, he was later pardoned by the governor. Now, at first, Mosby told a friend that he was going to fight for the Union, but after Lincoln rallied up 75,000 volunteers from the South, Mosby decided he was going to become a pure Southerner. And so when the vote came for secession, even though in previous times Mosby had spoken out against secessionists, he knew what was going to happen, that this was going to be a bloody and protracted affair. But most of the people in the South were certainly hoping that they could get it over quickly, in the North it didn't happen. Anyway, when the vote came for secession in Volker County, there were only four votes not to secede. A famous and glamorous and classic example of guerrilla warfare was when Mosby, on March 8, 1863, at Fairfax Courthouse, captured Brigadier General Edwin H. Stoughton, a West Point graduate from a prominent family in Vermont. As Mosby awoke him out of bed, the general angrily shouted at him. Do you know who I am? Mosby replied. I reckon I do, General. Did you ever hear of Mosby? Yes, the General says. Have you caught him? No, but he has caught you, answered Mosby. <laughs> One of Mosby's great um, accomplishments was rousing out that and so other high-ranking officers right out of the middle of their Union camp. Anyway, he had captured Brigadier General, 30 men, 58 horses, all without firing a shot or losing a man, and all this was done among 3,500 Federals the odds that great it appears that he might have had some help from above another of his hearing experiences was his escape uh, from the feds at hathaway house uh, somehow the yankees had gotten word that he was visiting hathaway's they were friends and uh, local virginia planters and others would love to uh, uh, entertain uh, confederate officers and show their appreciation their daughters would meet them they'd dance all night and have a ball perhaps but but obviously, uh, it's tough to keep such things quiet. So they were at the Hathaways. And after surrounding the house at midnight, uh, feds knocked on the door of the house, and, uh, they, and they entered the home, and they said, said they were searching for Mosey. They knocked on all the bedroom doors, and uh, a lieutenant came up from Pauline, and John's bedroom. I, I, I'm, I may be wrong. Pauline was his wife. Pauline may have been a Hathaway. I'm not sure, because they were married at this time that they came. Pauline John's bedroom. And Pauline was three months pregnant at the time uh, with John Singleton, mostly junior, but her demeanor was enough, it says here, that it allowed, it allowed John just enough time to climb out the window and on a limb of a large walnut tree, staying there for some eight hours <laughs> up in the tree on that summer night of June 8, 1863. And if you know your history, you know that Gettysburgs are coming uh, within another about a month, about a month, uh, in spite of the fact that his spurs were found in the bedroom and his horse was discovered, Mosby never was. In the providence of God, their bedroom was conveniently located next to that walnut tree. One of the advantages of being a guerrilla is that the spoils for the victory went to the guerrillas. In his 28 months of guerrilla fighting, Mosby and his rangers captured 3,500 horses and a great number of weapons and were responsible for over 2,900 Union casualties or prisoners. Most people would award the best horses captured to those who demonstrated the greatest bravery in battle. The on rate in 1863 was 110 bucks for a cavalry horse, 12 bucks for a revolver, and 10 bucks for a rifle. So a ranger could earn himself about 132 bucks by capturing one Union cavalryman which was more than a year's pay for a private. Often, Mosby himself was paid in gold. One of the easiest sources of spoils, is when they captured a sutler, that's a civilian uh, who, who sells supplies to the, the soldiers on the field. They bring up their sutler's wagon home in a chuck wagon. So, what would happen then, it says here this, this is one of the more pleasurable events in the life of the rangers. They shared the spoils, which often included a variety of items pots, pans, food. On a rare occasion, most people participate in sharing the spoils of the celebration that went with it. One of the more impressive raids was when the rangers derailed a train, blowed the boiler with a large weapon they had captured, and took much spoils, including $174,000 in cash. Those rangers insisted he take his share, most refused. The men then took up a collection of 10,000 bucks and they gave it to Pauline, his wife. He then returned it to the troops as a Christmas present. And in return, they gave him a prize horse named Coquette that had been much admired earlier. Mosby had the integrity of George Washington, ethics that are completely contrary to what is in Washington, D.C. today. America's war between the states was one of the cruelest wars in history, as we all know, with much bloodshed, tears, and heartache. It says here that over 625,000 men and 1.5 million horses were killed after Mosby greatly embarrassed, excuse me, embarrassed General Phil Sheridan in the wagon raid of August 13, 1864, in and around Berryville, Virginia, Sheridan suffered great loss of wagons and their supplies. The desire to flush out Mosby increased. This resulted in the burning raid, November 1864, when General Sheridan, a confident Union cavalry general, by the way, uh, he set up a hundred killer team of 100 men. Under the leadership of Captain Richard Blazer, with one mission—that was to go kill or capture mostly and his Rangers—the Union troops went up the valley, <clears throat> Shenandoah, I imagine, using the terror tactic: of mass destruction of civilian property. Homes were burned, barns were burned, horses were killed, crops and livestock were slaughtered, and looted, taken with the troops by the Union. All private valuables were, were ripped out of the houses. Uh, women and children were intimidated. I don't know if on this particular raid, how physical they got. I know that uh, Sherman's march to the sea was an atrocity. uh, At any rate, back to this, Mosby and his rangers were not flushed out. This cruel tactic was once again used by the Union forces. Here it is right here, when General Sherman catastrophically marched to the sea, burning Atlanta on the way. And wrapping up of this introduction to this particular memoir's of Mosby book it says, John Singleton Mosby was involved in the first battle of Manassas, Run, and his exploits ended after General Robert E. Lee surrendered on April 9, 1865, Appomattox Courthouse. Colonel Mosby never surrendered, but he disbanded the 43rd Battalion at Salem, which is now Marshall, Virginia. And here was his farewell address to his men. Soldiers, I have summoned you together for the last time The vision we have cherished for a free and independent country has vanished, and that country is now the spoil of a conqueror. I disband your organization and preference to surrendering it to our enemies. I am no longer your commander after an association of more than two eventful years. I part from you with a just pride in the fame of your achievements and grateful recollections of your generous kindness to myself. And now, at this moment of bidding, a final adieu, accept the assurance of my unchanging confidence in regard to Colonel John S. Moe, the CAA, CSA, excuse me, 43rd Battalion, Virginia Cavalry. Listen, they they were so scared most be in Washington, D.C., that night they would pull the planks up off the bridges for fear that somehow he would slip past thousands of troops and guards and kidnap from President Lincoln uh they they the guy was re, really amazing but as i said one of the things about him was his intellect here's a, a guy he came from a, a well-off family i believe his father died when he was a child though and um they were poverty-stricken for a while i think his wife remarried and whatever through good uh, business moves he got himself uh back up and was 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 no doubt he had attended some decent schools and so at the time, it's just amazing reading back on what he says about things and some of the reference classical references he made. Uh, there was one in here about a shirt of something, and I, I didn't. Know it was a shirt that had killed Her- Her- Hercules, and the uh, I think it's a shirt of Nestor or Nestor, one of the other. And Nestor was a uh, centaur, and they had uh, taken the centaur's blood, which was poison, and they had put it on the shirt, and then the, and the, the bad guy gave it to Hercules, and he put it on and killed it. And I'm like, yeah, who knows? The references that these guys knew. how smart these guys were how much smarter
0: right are and, how, and how stupid are are we today
1: and i even have to say we because i didn't know some of these references uh but others as we know, are even i hate to say it, dumber than you and i which is hard to believe sometimes but right they are uh, and uh, they don't even care at least we care i'm going to read a little bit of section here about the greenback rate right? uh, and uh, this comes from Mosby's own words, and sometimes through his letters. And then he'll connect the messages in the letters. Uh, I'll try to skip over the eventful portions, but basically, throughout the fall and winter of 1864, Mosby was just just incessantly uh, attacking and raiding on Sheridan and, and trying to break his communications and gather intelligence to help Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Was gone by this point. Uh, had, I think the Battle of Fell was 1864. I'm not sure, but it was a great loss. But must uh, be also mentioned Jackson. What a great, great man uh, Stonewall Jackson was. Now, uh, here's a letter they wrote near Middleburg. Middleburg's a, a very, so we say, antique area around here. Up in, I think Loud Loudon, north of north of us and Stafford, and which you said they mentioned earlier. You still see these old taverns and every proud of their past, but. He's near Millerberg and he writes a letter. My dearest Pauline, I have been engaged in a perpetual strife with the Yankees ever since my arrival. They are now engaged in repairing the railroad that I attacked recently and destroyed. I just recently attacked the camp of 800. So he operated in Sheridan's rear. The railroad that brought his supplies was his weak point and consequently our favorite object of attack. For security, it, security, it had to be closely guarded by detachments of troops, which materially Reduced the Union's offensive strength. We kept watch for unguarded points, and the opportunity they offered was never lost. Early in October, one of my best men, Jim Wiltshire, afterwards a prominent physician in Baltimore, discovered and reported to me a gap through which we might penetrate between the guards and reach that railroad without exciting an alarm. It was a hazardous enterprise, as there were camps along the line and frequent communication between them. But I knew it would injure Sheridan, to destroy a train, compel him to place a stronger guard on the road. So I resolved to take the risk. Wiltshire had a timetable. We knew the minute when the train was due. And so timed our arrival that we would not have to wait long. There was a great danger of our being discovered, but the patrols on the road and our presence reported to the camps that were near. The situation was critical. We were so buoyant with hope. We did not realize it. The western bound passenger train was selected from the schedule as I knew it would create a, great, a greater sensation to burn it than any other. It was due about 2 o'clock in the morning. Wilshire conducted us to a long, deep cut in the railroad. No patrol or picket was in sight. I preferred derailing the train in a cut to running it off an embankment because there would be less danger of the passengers being hurt. People who travel on a railroad in a country where military operations are going on if you take the risk of all these accidents of war, I was not conducting an insurance business on life or property. It was a lovely night, bright and clear, with a big jack frost on the ground. I believe that I was the only member of my command who went through the war without a watch, where all my men had watches, and we knew it would not be long before the train would be due. The debts were sent out, and the men were ordered to lie down on the bank of the railroad and keep quiet, hidden all day, and we were tired and sleeping. We were soon peacefully dreaming. I laid my head in the lap of one of my men, Kirk Hutchison, and fell asleep. For some reason, I suppose it was because we were sleeping so soundly, we did not hear the train coming until it got up to the cup, and I was aroused and astounded by an explosion and a crash. As we had displaced the rail, the engine had run off the track, but the boiler had burst, and the air was filled with red-hot cinders, escaping steam. A good description of the scene could be found in Dante's Inferno. Above all, could be heard the screams of the passengers, especially the women. The task became so suddenly that my men at first seemed to be stunned and bewildered, knowing that the railroad guards would soon hear of it. No time was to be lost. I ran along the line and pushed my men down the bank, ordering them to go to work, pulling out the passengers and setting fire to the cars. By this time, Hutchison had recovered from the shock and jumped on the train. When the train came up, he was snoring and dreaming that he was in hell. And when he was awakened by the crash, he found himself breathing steam and in a sparkling sparkling shower. He had no doubt then that his dream was not all a dream. But he recovered his senses, and I gave him a push. He slid down a bank. Didn't take long to pull out the passengers. While all of this was going on, I stood on the bank giving directions to the men. One of them reported to me that the car was filled with Germans and that they wouldn't get out. I told them, set fire to the car and burn the Dutch if they won't come out. They were immigrants going west to locate homesteads, and they did not understand a word of English or what this all meant. They had through tickets and thought they had a right to keep their seats. There was a lot of New York heralds on the train for Sheridan's Army, so my men circulated the papers through the train and applied matches. Suddenly, there was a grand illumination. The Germans now took in the situation and came tumbling all in a pile out of the flames. I hope they all live to be naturalized and get home. They ought not to blame me, but Sheridan was his business, not mine, to protect them. While we were helping the passengers to climb the steep bank, one of my men, Cap Maddox, who had been sent off as a cadet to watch the road, came dashing up and cried out that the Yankees were coming. I immediately gave orders to mount quickly and form. and one scout was sent to find out the report was true. He soon came back and said it was not. Men had been dismounted and went to work again. It was very—I was very mad with Cab for almost creating a stampede. I told him that I had a good mind to have him shot. Cab was quick-witted, but seeing how angry I was, said nothing then. But he often related the circumstance after the war. His well-harnessed account of it was that I ordered him to be shot at sunrise, and that he had said he hoped it would be a foggy morning. And I was so much amused by his reply that I relented and pardoned him. Years afterward, Cab confessed why he gave the false alarm. He said he heard the noise the train made when it ran off the track and knew the men were gathering the spoils. He did not think it was fair to him to be away picnic for their benefit. He also said that after he got to the burning car, he made up for some lost time. Now, a great many uh, ludicrous incidents occurred, according to Mosby here, uh, and he relates them all. He says, One lady ran up to me and exclaimed, Oh, my father's a Mason. I had no time to say anything, but I can't help it. One passenger claimed immunity for himself on the ground that he was a member of an aristocratic church in Baltimore. Just as cat dashed up two of my men, Charlie Deere and West Aldridge came to me and reported that they had two U.S. paymasters with their satchels and greenbacks, knowing it would be safer to send them out by a small party, which could easily elude the enemy. One of my lieutenants, Charlie Grogan, was detailed with two or three men to take them over the ridge to our rendezvous, When my men got anything in the shape of pocketbooks, watches, or other valuable articles I never inquired. I was too busy attending to the destroying of the train to see whatever they did. We left all the civilians, including the ladies, to keep warm, burning cars, and the soldiers were taken with us as prisoners. Among the latter was a young German lieutenant who had just received the commission and was on his way to join his regiment and chair his army. I was attracted by his demeanor Struck up a conversation with him and rode by him for several miles. He we was dressed in a fine beaver cloth overcoat, hot boots, and a new hat with gilt cord and tassel. After that, we were pretty well acquainted. I said to him, We have done you no harm. Why did you come over here to fight us? Oh, he said, I only come to learn the art of war. I then left him and rode to the head of the column as the enemy were about. There was a prospect of a fight not long before the German came trotting up to join me. There had been such a metamorphosis that I scarcely recognized him. One of my men had exchanged his old clothes with him for his new ones, and he complained about it. I asked him if he had not told me that he came to Virginia to learn the art of war. Yes, he replied. Very well, he said. This is your first lesson. Now it must be thought that the habit of appropriating the enemy's goods was peculiar to my men. Through all ages it had been the custom of war. Not long after this incident, I had to suffer from the same operation. I was shot at night, stripped of my clothes. Forty years afterward, a lady returned to me, the hat which I had been wearing. She said that her uncle, Lieutenant Colonel Coles of the regiment that had captured it, had given it to her as a relic of war. That is war. I am willing to admit, however, that in a statement of mutual accounts at that time, my men were largely in debt to Sheridan's forces. In the end, uh, that's the end of that particular section. At the end, it turned out that they had gotten a lot of money. I think it was somewhere around 74000 bucks and it had been the, the pay that was waiting for the Union soldiers, which put some of the Union soldiers in the area into desertion mode. It also had great numbers of Union troops coming out to try to find this Mosby, that repair that train, to get the train off the track, which was a big, big thing. And so, all these little things added up just confounding and confusing the Union forces in the area so that they couldn't uh, use their uh, some uh, troop superiority, number superiority, material superiority to just devastate the area. So whatever he could do to tie up the Union, mostly did. And after the war, um, he mostly was a sentimental guy, but and he had, he, Robert E. Lee, I think, was beloved to him and vice versa. He had, Lee had shown great admiration and support for Mosby during the war. Of course, early on, Mosby was an irregular soldier, we'll say, and so he didn't have perhaps the pay or the um, the protection that a real soldier would have. So later on, he became a a soldier, and Lee always supported any promotions that came along. After the war, uh, when Mosby wrote this book, he concluded a section nobody he thought about Robert E. Lee. That it was interesting. Here's Mosby's recollections of General Lee. My first meeting with General Robert E. Lee was in August 1862 when I brought the news of uh, Burnside's, of Ambrose Burnside's reinforcement of the Pope, a story that I've told in the preceding pages. The next time we met was we at his headquarters in Orange, and that's Orange County, Orange City, uh, in Orange County about two months after Gettysburg, but Lee did not seem in the least depressed. He was as buoyant and as aggressive as ever. He took a deep interest in my operations, for there was nothing of the Fabius in his character. Dave looked at him up. There's one. I I don't know what that means. There's nothing of the Fabius in his character. Lee was the most aggressive man I met in the war and was always ready for an enterprise. I believe that his interest in me was largely due to the fact that his father, like Horse Harry, was a partisan officer in the American Revolutionary War. After General Stewart was killed in May of 1864, I reported directly to General Lee. During the siege of Petersburg, I visited him three times, twice when I was wounded. Once, when I got out of the ambulance, he was standing near, talking to General James Longstreet. When he saw me hobbling up to him on crutches, he came to meet me. He introduced me to General Longstreet said, Colonel, the only fault I have ever had to find with you is that you are always getting wounded. Such a speech, General Lee, more than repaid me for my wound. The last time I saw him during the war was about two months before the surrender. I had been wounded again. He was not only kind, but affectionate. asked me to take dinner with him, though he said he hadn't much to eat. There was a leg of mutton on the table. But he remarked that some of the staff officers must have stolen it. After dinner, when we were alone, he talked very freely. He said that in the spring of 1862, Joe Johnston, that General Joe Johnston of the Confederacy, ought not to have fallen back from the Rapidan to Richmond, that he had written, urging him to turn against Washington. He also said that when Joe Johnston evacuated his lines at Yorktown in May of that year, we should have given him battle with his old force on the Isthmus at in Williamsburg instead of making a weird, hard fight. When I vaguely goodbye after our last interview, I had no idea that it was my final parting with him as my commander. I can never forget the sympathetic words with which he cautioned me against unnecessary exposure to danger. The following is the last order he ever gave me, it was dated March 27, 1865, and it put me in command of all of Northern Virginia. Collect your command and watch the country from the front of Gordonsville to Blue Ridge and also the Valley. Your command is all now that is in that section and the General, General Lee, will rely on you to watch and protect the country. If any of your command is in Northern Net, call it to you. That was passed to Mosby from W.H. Taylor, which was an Assistant Adjutant General of General Lee. Lee was raised in the political school of Washington and Hamilton. In the Virginia Convention of 1788, his father had voted against the imbecile Confederation and for the Constitution, which made the laws of the Union the supreme law of the land, and in 1798 spoke and voted against the famous States' Rights Resolutions. In the year 1794, he commanded the Virginia troops that ordered Pennsylvania to suppress the Whiskey Insurrection. It is difficult to distinguish in law between Washington's proclamation in 1794 calling out the military force to execute the laws of the United States and Lincoln's proclamation eighteen sixty one, calling out, asking for a, a draft, I believe, calling out seventy five thousand, asking for seventy five thousand volunteers. As Lieutenant Colonel of the Second Cavalry, Lee we was stationed in Texas in february eighteen sixty one but was ordered to Washington, arriving there about the time of the presidential inauguration. The commander-in-chief, General Scott of Virginia, was too old for active service. There was then no retirement law, and he wanted Lee near him as an advisor and second-in-command. On March 16, Colonel Edwin V. Sumner was promoted to be Brigadier General in place of Twiggs, who had been dismissed for treachery in surrendering the Union troops in Texas. A Virginia lady who met Lee about that time told me many years ago that he spoke to her with great indignation about General Twiggs' conduct. Lee now became Colonel of the First Gallery, as biographers do not seem to have heard of this promotion and ignored the fact that he accepted a commission from President Lincoln. Lee was with his family at Arlington and on confidential relations with the War Department up to the day of his resignation, April 20, 1861, as the command of the U.S. Army was offered to him. Scott must have thought that he would stand by the Union, and Lee's purpose to resign in the event of Virginia passing an ordinance of secession had not been disclosed. Lee was forced by circumstances to take the side for which he fought for in the war. On the subject of slavery and the right of secession, he agreed with Abraham Lincoln. Five years before, in writing about slavery, he had said, quote, it is a moral, social, and political evil. Writing at Fort Mason, Texas on January 23, 1861, after seven states passed ordinances of secession, Lee said, quote, the framers of our Constitution would never have exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in its formation and surrounded it with so many safeguards and securities if it was intended to be broken by every member of the Confederacy at will. It was intended for perpetual union, so expressed in the preamble, and for establishment of a government, not a compact, which can only be dissolved by revolution or by the consent of all the people in convention assembled. It is idle to talk of secession, anarchy, for it been established and not a government by Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, and all the other patriots of the revolution." End quote. When Lee resigned his commission to join the forces of his native state, he acted as nearly every soldier acts personal sympathy with the combatants and not on any legal theory of right and wrong on the day when he resigned he wrote his sister that he could not draw his sword against his family his neighbors and his friends i think by the way as an aside that pretty much sums up the point of view of many of the southerners who fought for and, and fought in the southern army they simply could not draw a sword against their family their neighbors and their friends On the previous day, uh, he happened to go to the store in Alexandria to pay a bill. Lee's heart was burdened with a great sorrow, and he uttered these words, which the merchant wrote down in his journal, and they still stand there today. Lee said, I must say that I am one of those dull creatures that cannot see the good of secession. End quote. Below this entry, the merchant wrote, spoken by Colonel Robert E. Lee, and he paid his bill April 19, 1861. Few days later, Lee was made commander in chief of the forces of the state of Virginia. There was no competition for the position. Late Judge John Critcher represented Westmoreland, Lee's native county, in the secession convention, and was one of the committee's committee sent to notify him of the appointment. The judge told me that when Lee turned, oh, excuse me, Uh, Let's skip ahead here. Uh, I once heard General John C. Breckinridge say at dinner in Baltimore, soon after soon after he returned from his exile in Canada, that if the Southern Confederacy had been established, there would have been such a spirit of local self-assertion that every county would have claimed the right to stand up for itself. I Met generally a few times after the war, but the days of strife were never mentioned. I remember the last words he spoke to me about two months. Before his death, at a reception that was given to him in Alexandria. When I bade him goodbye, he said, quote, Colonel, I hope we shall have no more wars. Quote. In March 1870, I was walking across the bridge connecting the Ballard and Exchange hotels in Richmond, and to my surprise, I met General Lee and his daughter. The General was pale and haggard. He did not look like the Apollo I had known in the Army. After a while, I went to his room our conversation. As on current topics. I felt oppressed by the great memories that his presence revived. While both of us were thinking about the war, neither of us referred to it. After leaving the room, I met General Pickett and told him that I had just been late. He remarked that if so I would go with him, he would call and pay his respects to the general. But he did not want to go and be alone with him, so I'm back to Pickett. The interview was cold and formal, evidently embarrassing in both. It was their only meeting after the war. Uh, General Pickett, as you probably know, was the leader of Pickett's Charge, in which at Gettysburg, when all else was failing, he ordered frontal assault on the Union lines. General Pickett led the way, and they were just slaughtered as they came across that field hit with cannon fire and projectiles and Troops and Pickett. Pickett always wondered why he had chosen him, and Lee had always wondered if he picked the right guy for it. But so this meeting was very emotional for Pickett. He always wanted to talk to Lee about it. But anyway, it says in a few minutes uh, I rose and left the room together with General Pickett. He then spoke very bitterly, General Lee, calling him that old man. He had my division massacred at Gettysburg, Pickett said. Well, it made you immortal, I replied. I rather suspect Pickett gave a wrong reason for his unfriendly feelings. In May, 1892, University of Virginia, I took breakfast with Professor Venable, who had been on Lee's staff. He told me that some days before the surrender of Appomattox, General Lee ordered Pickett under arrest. I suppose from the Five Forks affair, Professor said that he carried the order uh, five forks. I think uh, a picket uh, command had, had gotten caught unawares. Pickett was away from his command at the time in a war zone and had been suffering with some of his officers at a local plantation, and he got back uh, too late to command his um, troops at five forks. I remember very well his adding that on the retreat. Picket passed them. That General Lee said with deep feeling, that man still with the army. I once went to see the tomb of Montcalm in the chapel of the Ursuline Convent in Quebec. When I read the inscription, fate denied him victory, but blessed him with the glorious immortality, and recalled General Robert E. Lee." Well, I think we have a little time to go over, uh, read a few of the recollections that he had at General Grant The a bit longer. I will say this, after the war, and General Grant was also looking to um, uh, heal the wounds of war. Uh, Grant was not one to go out and punish uh, these soldiers for fighting for what they believed in. As a matter of fact, at Gettysburg, I believe he gave the officers the right to take mules, horses, mules, or, or guns, whatever they needed, and also the regular soldiers they may have had to turn their guns in, they may have been allowed to take one for hunting. I can't remember what it was. But generally speaking, the people in the North and some of the politicians thought that. Grant's gesture of Appomattox was just too much, too much. You know, this is a subjugated foe which we need to beat down and Grant and, and, and soldiers at the time, most of them I would hope, had a real uh, gentlemanly um, treatment of their attitude and treatment towards the vanquished. At any anyway, rate, interestingly, Mosby, I think became a Democrat, become a Democrat or Republican, maybe became a Republican. Everybody was Republican, Lincoln was Republican, uh, I think afterwards, is was Rutherford B. Hayes, right? And and General Grant, you had Johnson, and you had Grant, and you had more Union generals coming up there, or uh, officers, you had Rutherford B. Hayes, and you had James Garfield. But there was a string of Union uh, officers that were president uh, after uh, Lincoln was assassinated. Johnson uh, didn't run again, I guess. But, um, uh, uh, but he particularly, Grant particularly liked most people and um, had great admiration for him, and he ended up uh, speaking for him on numerous occasions. At any rate, here's when Mosby first meets John Grant. I first met General Grant in May 1872 after Mr. Greeley had been nominated for the presidency by a convention whose members called themselves liberal Republicans. Although, as a matter of fact, many of them had been the most radical elements of the party, but had seceded on account of personal grievances. My home was then at Warrant, Virginia where I was practicing law, uh, mostly became a lawyer. Uh, As it was only 50 miles from Washington, I was frequently there. But I had only once seen General Grant one evening at the National Theater when he was in a box with General Sherman. Both men seemed to enjoy the play as much as the gods in the gallery. In common with most Southern soldiers, I had a very kindly feeling towards General Grant, not only on account of his magnanimous conduct of mathematics, but also for his treatment of me at the close of hostilities. And I had never called on him, however, if I had done so, and if he had received me politely, we should both have been subjected to severe criticism, so bitter was the feeling between the sections at the time. No doubt, in those days, most Northerners believed the imaginative stories of the war correspondence. And supposed that my battalions fought under the black flag, General Grant, as much as understood in the South as I was in the North, but time has healed wounds which were once thought to be irremediable. And there is today, no memory of our war so bitter, probably as the Scottish recollection of Culloden. Uh, That was the slaughter of the Scots at Culloden by the Brits. Like most Southern men, I had disproved reconstruction measures that were sore and very resting when the military government and since my prejudices have faded, and now see that many things which we regarded as being prompted by hostile and fictive motives were actually necessary in order to prevent anarchy, to secure the freedom of the newly emancipated slave. I had given little attention to politics and had devoted my time to my profession, although I was under no political disability. As we had all been opposed to the Republican Party before the war, it was a point of honor to keep on voting that way. When Horace Greeley was nominated, I saw, or I thought I saw, that it was idle to divide longer upon issues which we acknowledged to have been legally, if not properly, settled. And that if the Southern people wanted reconciliation, as they said they did, the logical thing to do was to vote for Grant. I have not changed my opinion, nor yet have I any criticism to make of those who differed with me. We were all working for the same end. Some said they couldn't sacrifice their principles for Grant's friendship. I didn't sacrifice mine. Not long before the death, the late General M.C. Butler, United States Senator from South Carolina, I met him on the street in Washington. We ought to have gone with you for Grant, he said. My views and opinions of that period are set forth in the following interview published in the Richmond Enquirer, January 1873. Reporter says to Mosby, as he had stated generally, that you have some influence with General Grant. Is this true? Mosby says, I don't know what amount of influence I may have with the president, but General Grant knows the fiery ordeal I have been through here in supporting him, and I suppose he has some appreciation of it. Porter, what is the policy that you have advocated for this Virginia people, Colonel Mosby? The issues that formerly divided the Virginia people from the Republican Party were those growing out of the Reconstruction measures. Last year, the Virginian people agreed to make no further opposition to those measures and to accept all questions growing out of them as settled. There being no longer any questions, men or principles separating Virginian people from General Grant, it became a mere matter of policy and expediency, whether they would support him or Horace Greeley. I thought it was the first opportunity the Southern people had had to restore their proper relation and influence with the federal administration, in other words, I said the southern statesmen ought to avail themselves of this opportunity to support General Grant for re-election and thereby acquire influence and control over his administration. That was the only way I saw of displacing the carpet bag crew that represented the government in the southern states. I think at events of demonstrating I was right. What he is saying there, Mosby is saying, is that he spoke out in support of Grant and he was nearly run out of Virginia because to support the Republicans to support General Grant particularly was a nearly a, a suicidal thing. I think he was shot at. He was practically run out of the state. In the even with his great reputation, but uh, back to back to the interview. The reporter says, "Has the president ever tended to you any position under his administration?" he said shortly after the presidential election the president said something to me on the subject of giving me an office I told him while I would hold an office under him as under any other man who had ever been president that there was no office within his gift that I desired or would accept I told him that my motives in supporting him had been assailed and my accepting a position under his administration would be regarded as the confirmation of the truth of the charge that I was governed by selfish motives my principal reason not accepting anything from him is that I would have far more more than I deserved. General Grant had also done another thing that showed the generosity of his nature. A few weeks before the surrender, a small party of my men crossed the Potomac one night and got into a fight once a detective was killed. One of the men was captured and was sent to Fort McHenry. After the war, he was tried by a military commission and sentenced to, be sentenced to be imprisoned. The boy's mother went to see President Johnson to beg a pardon for her son. But Johnson repelled her, roughly at her distress, she went over to the War Department to see General Grant and listened patiently to her sorrowful story, then rose and asked her to go with him. He took her to the White House, he walked into the reception room and told the president there had been suffering enough, and they would not leave the room without a pardon for the young Southerner Johnson signed the necessary paper. In spite of the parole that I had taken after I had settled down to practice the law. I was several times arrested by provost marshals stationed at the courthouses when I went on the circuit. This was both annoying and unfair. My parole was a contract with the government that was binding on both parties to arrest me before I had violated it, it as a breach. As my wife passed through Washington on her way to Baltimore, she determined to go to the White House, not to ask for a pardon, but to make a complaint. She had not intimated her purpose to me. Her father, President Johnson, served in Congress together and had been friends. Well, she told Johnson, whose daughter, whose wife she was. Instead of responding kindly, he was rude to her. She left him, went to see General Grant, and he treated her as courteously as if she had been the wife of a Union soldier, and then wrote the following letter she gave to her. He did not dictate the letter to a clerk. The whole, in his small, neat handwriting, gave me liberty to travel anywhere unmolested as long as I have served my parole. Well, Dave, uh, there's much more to this book, uh, and it's a very interesting book and could be purchased from the Barnes Review. Barnes Review is a history magazine, politically incorrect. Uh, this particular book may or may not continue to be published in the shape it's in. It's a very nice book, but on the front cover, we've got a Confederate flag. And we all know that anything that displays the Confederate flag means Amazon might not take it. So I would suggest that people would like to get a copy of the memoirs of Colonel John S. Mosby, published by the Barnes Review, which is the preeminent edition, including not only the foreword from the original editor of the piece, but also a lengthy introduction by Stanley Rittenhouse, who is... Uh, a supporter of the Barnes Review and a you, an historian and also a citizen of the Warrington area uh, which Mosby was active in. Uh, or you can order this book if you don't go to amazon you can just go to www.torensreview.com look up memoirs and Mosby you'll see it's there 25 bucks uh it's great stuff i mean he goes through the details of he defends Stuart's actions at Gettysburg, you know, uh, Stewart has always taken a lot of heat for um, uh, disappearing in the battle of Gettysburg when he was trying to collect uh, uh, intelligence, and Mosby stuck up to the end because Mosby was allowed access to private papers, which other people didn't care about, and he found the letters of uh, Lee and Jackson, or was it Lee and Longstreet? Maybe Lee and Longstreet. And they had basically ordered Stewart to do what he did, and he may have gone a circuitous route, but he certainly wasn't responsible for the loss the defeat at Gettysburg, so mostly sticks up for his old pal, Jeff Stewart. He talks about other raids that he went on uh, to to do as his, uh, his, uh, surprising, a little more of a detail about the surprising of General Stoughton, capturing that, his beliefs on things of, uh, the feelings that he had for his wife and his family and the tender letters, but also the, the strict disciplinarian that he was with his own men and the inspiration that he was for that television program in 1957, which I said would never appear again. So <laughs> if you want to get a copy of most of these memoirs while you 10 before they're outlawed and banned, Go to the parts View and get them. Davey, are you still with me?
0: I'm always here, Paul. You know that. What are you working on? Huh. <laughs> you work on the, the American Free Press website? I'm working on everything. Yeah, I am. We had
1: a we had a, 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 a ad for Mosty book there too. I, I I think if we all wrap it up by saying that you know these guys, if you listen to what Mosby's saying, yeah, you don't hear a lot of hatred in the voice. His letters don't mention slavery much. Uh, they don't really talk about that. I mean, he, I think, he owned slaves. I'm not sure. if He was in a position to do so. He had accumulated some wealth. His wife was wealthy, but she had family in Baltimore, evidently. And uh, it's just like it's just a, it's a different world. It's a different time. It's a different aesthetic. It's a different morality. And you know, even in the midst of the Civil War, in which these guys were slaughtering each other every day and right and left, they still somehow kept their humanity. And so, you know, I'm. Really like to know what some of these guys would think about what's going on today, because to see their their battle flag uh, treated in such a fashion, and to see uh, the preconception that people have about what they thought about the South and what they wanted for the future of America, I think they'd just be astounded, as would say Adolf Hitler would be astounded if he were to see what was being said about him today, um, and uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I would, We need more eyewitness accounts of what was going on there, too. And and to say that this particular battle flag, the battle flag is Confederacy, and the first, second, and third national flags are symbols of hate, it's kind of ridiculous. I guess that's the way it's going to go. I don't want to say goodbye to it. I think we should do what we can do without risking the lives of our families, of course, if that one poor individual had to do, you know, to, to, to educate people about this topic, to let them read the words of real Confederate. Gentlemen, soldiers,
0: believe me, not all of them were
1: perfect. But is there
0: anything you'd like to say in conclusion, Dave? Okay. Well, no, just that uh, there were three black cops in Baltimore and three white. We, we talked about that earlier on. And you mentioned uh, Fabius. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, that, that refers to this Fabius Maximus, who was a Roman politician in general. And what it means, basically, without going too much into it, is uh, cautious, to be cautious. The Fabian Society, from the members' belief in slow rather than revolutionary change in government.
1: Well, that's very helpful. Now, I've learned something because I've heard that and I have kind of pretended or thought I knew what it meant. But now I understand what the Fabian Society is and what that means. Thank you, Colonel John S. Mosby. Well, listen. Uh, do you want it, Are you when you go down to the? Me, <laughs> when you go down to your league in the South rally, are they looking for people to attend? Is this a closed event? Do they want people from the town to come? What's the story? Well, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the league. Are of the
1: Go ahead. Only, I'm sorry. Are they only members?
0: Well, the annual convention is open to anyone. There are some parts of it that are not, but but most of it is. And of course, this event, if all you have to do is go to leagueofthesouth.com, and you can see what we're talking about there. Yeah. But yeah, people can show up. It's going to be in Wheatumpka, Alabama. And I don't know much about Wheatumpka except what I found out is there's a casino there. I think it's called Wind Creek. Keep yourself out of that casino. I don't gamble. You are for your money. (laughs) What money? <laughs> well, listen, let's just go ahead then and, and uh, give the date of that again. Yes, that is coming up this week. It starts Friday, the 24th, and it ends on the 25th. So. And so we'll see a report about that in the pages of American Free Press and it'll yes. be posted
1: on AmericanFreePress.net. Well, let's wrap her up. We'll see you next week.